Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode we spoke to the journalist Hadley Freeman. We spoke to Hadley about her family memoir House of Glass, her work at The Guardian and the challenges of column writing. It's a great episode, we hope you enjoy it. Hi Hadley and welcome to Always Take Notes. We thought we would kick off by talking about your memoir, um, House of Glass, which was published in March 2020. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the decision to write the book? Because I know you'd said um, that you'd been thinking about it since about 1999, but it was kind of like pressing on a bruise or picking at a scab. (laughs) Uh, That's right. So thank you for having me on, Rachel. Um, So I started sort of thinking about writing something about my grandmother in, like you say, about 1999, um, 2000, when I started working at The Guardian. And um, for want of um, a better way of putting it, I just sort of dicked around about it for about six years and eventually found some mementos in my grandmother's closet. My, my uncle lives in where my grandmother used to live, so her, her um, belongings are still preserved. And that set me off on this path um, about her life and the lives of her brothers. And I spent 18 years researching it. And then in about January 2018, finally decided 18 years to play enough dicking around and I had to write it. And it wasn't even just the time limit. It was a bunch of um, outside political events that prompted it. Obviously, there was the election of Donald Trump, uh, which didn't have anything to do with Jews or the Holocaust or anything that I'd been researching, but was obviously um, a quite nationalistic uh, election and then Trump did describe uh, anti-Semitic protesters as very fine people. Uh, there was the Brexit election, which again was a very nationalistic uh, issue. And then there was the anti-Semitic uh, scandal going on in the Labour Party. And all these three things combined uh, made me think maybe talking about what my family had been through was not just me being self-indulgent and narcissistic, but maybe had some current relevance. Were you influenced by other Jewish family memoirs? I mean, I was thinking Hair of the Amber Eyes being the, the sort of breakout example of this. Did you feel that that was like a genre you were operating in? Um, well, embarrassingly, I never let myself read any of those books. Okay. Um, I, I couldn't bear to read Hair with the Amber Eyes when it came out in, I think, 2013 or something like that. Um, or I could barely bear to read East West Street by Philippe Sands um, because I felt they were so much better than what I was working on at the time. I was deep in research at that point. Um, so I, I didn't ever think I was up with those sort of lofty books and those incredibly respected elegant books if I thought about anything I was really thinking about the books I loved as a teenager which were things like the Mitford um, uh, sisters biographies the Foresight Saga those stories of big families in which every member is really different and you read one chapter about one sibling and it's fascinating and then you just suddenly get yanked into a different sibling and it's a fascinating in a different way that was the sort of book I was thinking about more of. What did the research process look like because um I think in an extract you mentioned um, archives in France, Poland and New York. How did the research fit with the writing? Was it kind of at the same time or did you do all the research first and then go about writing it? It, um, a smart person would have done them at the same time. A dumb person like me would have done 18 years of research and then suddenly decided one January morning, oh, yeah, I should write this up. And then looking back and thinking, oh, I forgot I researched that. Um, and embarrassingly, as I was writing up, I realized I'd researched some things three times and just forgotten. I'd found out about something in 2004 and then again in 2009 and then again in 2014. Uh, so it was very disorganized. And a lot of that is because I never actually really expected to write the book. I just thought this was this ridiculous long-term project that I was working on that was basically like Casabon in Middlemarch, uh, the key to <laughs> mythologies, and it would never actually get written. The sort of classic 
story told about writing about one's own family is that you know you you dig up some horrific secret you had no idea was there and then you fall out with all your in-laws forever <laughs> and things like that did did you experience elements of that i definitely expected that weirdly when i um when the book came out i didn't show it to any of my relatives except my dad before it was published um but they have all been incredibly supportive and thrilled, which I'm very moved by. Nobody likes someone else telling the story of their parents or grandparents. So I'm very touched that my cousins have all been really supportive. Um, I don't, I mean, without wanting to spoiler the book or anything, I don't think I've found anything massively incriminating about my family, but it's still hard to read someone else, someone else's take on your, your life experience. And to kind of return to that analogy of pressing on a bruise, was it harder to actually write than, than a kind of newspaper column? I mean how did you actually find the process of putting words on the page by then I, compared with research writing is a breeze for me I always enjoy writing it really was the research I found hard because it meant having to ask questions to my dad and my uncle about their mother which was the part I found the hardest their mother my grandmother was a very sad woman and that was what started me wanting to write this book I wanted to write about her sadness and I knew that they as her sons found her sadness very overwhelming, very guilt-inducing. Um, and that I found really difficult. I would be a terrible therapist. I hate asking people questions that are painful about their emotional lives. Um, so once that was done, I just wrote it. And you have to write as though you believe no one's going to read it. I believe that about newspaper articles. I definitely believe that about memoirs. Uh, so that was fine. Uh, waiting for my dad to get back to me after I'd given him the first draft was horrible. And very sweetly. My dad is a very, very sweet man. He only asked me to take out two words out of 110,000. So that gives you an insight into my father. Can you tell us what they were? Uh, yes, they were viciously and bitterly, um, both in description of how his parents some, some, some powerful adverbs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Tone down the adverbs. I think uh, Elmer Leonard would agree with that. Just take out the adverbs. Um, but he didn't want it to make, he didn't want me to make it sound like his parents were like tearing each other's hair out. So he wanted me yeah. to tone down how I described their relationship. And what was the broader reaction, both from your family, but then you maybe more broadly as well? Um, you mean from other... Yeah, well, from, we'll start with your family and then... Uh, yeah. From family, I, it was mainly shocked that I'd actually done it. <laughs> I'd been working on this damn thing for 20 years. I don't think any of them believed I was ever actually going to write it. Um, and I was with them on that. And then they were just thrilled that their grandparents and parents had been commemorated in this way, which I was really touched by. And also they were very interested in all the stuff I dug up, which was also very sweet of them. Um, more broadly, I'm amazed at the uh, attention it's had you know as I was writing it I thought even if this actually comes out which I didn't believe until the day before it was coming out even if this comes out no one's going to notice it most books come out and no one notices and then I'm going to be all you know why did I spend 20 years working on this book that no one's noticed and it's had such an incredible positive reaction um even during a plague I mean when the when when the coronavirus hit I thought this really is like some Jewish Old Testament punishment you spend 20 years on a book and then a plague hits when it comes out it just seems so hilariously Jewish and ironic but even so I mean I'm hearing from people every day that they read it that they recognize their own family story in it which I honestly never expected I thought at most my family would read it and when the when the illness hit I thought not even my family's gonna read it so I'm I'm really overwhelmed by how how people have reacted do you read the reviews yourself or do you get someone to kind of filter them for you <laughs> I wish I had that self-restraint but no I do read the reviews um 
And, and Philippe Sands read your book after you didn't read his. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I did read Philippe's book eventually because my agent assured me that it was very different from mine. I, I only was able to read Hair with the Amber Eyes um, after I'd finished mine because uh, I just knew I'd be massively intimidated by it and I'm still massively intimidated by it. And then in the end, Edmund Wall gave a quote from my book, which, which felt completely insane. Um, uh, so yeah, so it's, it's been incredible for me. Can we can we roll back a bit now to your sort of your beginnings, as it were? Um, I mean, do you feel you're American or you're British? That was one thing I was. Um, I th- I feel American, even though I've actually lived in this country for longer. I'm sure to you, I probably sound American, um, and it always sort of breaks my heart a bit when I go to America and they think I sound British. So clearly, I just live somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean at this point. Um, but being from New York, being New York Jewish, all that—that's very central to my identity. Having said that. When I moved back to New York in 2009 for about four years to work there for The Guardian, I suddenly realized how British I was and how British my taste and sensibility was. And I remember there was one morning, everybody else was going to see some new, um, uh, I think it was some uh, Steven Spielberg uh, Aliens movie or something. And I queued up to see Attack the Block by Joe Cornish. And I thought at that point, you really are British, Freeman. You need to get over it now. Um, And you were the editor of the Chairwell at um, Oxford. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Is that when your kind of interest in journalism started? Uh, well, it started before that. I mean, the reason I joined uh, my student paper was because I wanted to be a movie critic. Um, so when I finished my A-levels, which was the summer of 96, I think, um, uh, I started doing uh, work experience with movie critics, which basically means just following them to film screenings, which is the greatest work experience you can have. And that was with Quentin Curtis at the Daily Telegraph and um, Philip French, the Observer in particular. Uh, and he encouraged me to keep doing student journalism. So then I arrived at university. I started as a film critic somehow out of just, it was like literally falling upwards. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. They eventually made me arts editor and then there was no one to look after the paper at, at one point. So they just shoved me into editor role. It was the most passive progression through journalism uh, until board. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to question you on that bit because I, I, I did my time in student journalism at Oxford and I'm aware of the sort of labyrinthine politics and, and everything <laughs> like that. And I don't think anyone falls up uphill to edit Charwell. I'm is sure that... yeah, we, we've had, we have, oh, we, essentially we have a number of people in the podcast who often claim that they're extremely accomplished progression. We had Jeff Dyer last week claiming he just oh, yeah. sort of fell yeah. upwards to the top of his career. And Rachel and I decided we were going to quiz people harder on this. So... And, and that's fair. I mean, I really hate it that, I mean, this is how I know I'm American. I hate that British attitude. And I really saw this at Oxford of people pretending they hadn't done any work and then they like ace exams and get firsts. Like I hate that. And I, <laughs> I was one of those neurotic girls who would like read every book we were told to I did English so you'd get these like reading lists at the beginning of the term and you had to read like 50 books about Dickens as well as all the Dickens and I was the one sucker in my year or my group who would who would actually do that um, and then you know still didn't get a first or any of that crap um, so I am very with you on that that stupid English attitude of oh I don't do any work and somehow this happened but I can honestly tell you that I was in this weird period of Charwell when there really weren't thrusting people all the dynamic thrusting people were editor in my first year okay. and then there was two years when it was just absolute like you know, just people who were just there. So it, I became, I was just arts editor because I just wanted to read film reviews. And so I did that. And then my deputy became the editor after me. And he's now the film critic for The Telegraph. And he never wanted to be editor of the paper either. So I can honestly say I had no desire to be editor of the paper. And I can prove that in that the summer before my editorship started, the idea of waiting for other people's copy was so mental to me 
that I, I literally wrote like the whole issue of every paper before <laughs> Oxford term started. So I'd written every feature, every review before the term like started and just left the news stuff for the news reporters. So that's how uneditor I am, which is like, no, I can't wait for other people. I must write it myself without even being egomaniacal, just being a control freak. Uh, so I definitely didn't want to be editor and I've never been editor of anything since. I'm very happy to say. <laughs> I was about to ask what your editorship style was like, so <laughs> glad you answered that question. It was being completely hopeless, basically, and not really <laughs> understanding what on earth I was doing. <laughs> um, I read um, an article of yours where you talked about your um, entry into fashion journalism yeah. and interviewing at an American uh, fashion magazine and being asked to work for $17,000. Yeah. Oh, even less. And being told that everyone... Um, had a private income and that you know you'd, you'd be expected to just make it work um do you think that's that's changed at all and if so in what way so that was at american vogue so they offered me an arts assistant um and i went for the interview and uh it was anna wintour and everything and uh and yeah and she said it's, so the starting salary is thirteen thousand dollars and somehow i had the the mouse to know even at even being a particularly clueless 21 year old to say i don't think i can live in manhattan on that and she said, everyone's got private income. And since then, I have become like a regular contributor to Vogue, and I have seen how it's changed. I don't necessarily think they're paying more. I think the problem is that the, the fashion magazine world is kind of collapsing, really. I mean, the, you know, a lot of people have been sacked. A lot of magazines have either disappeared or their issues have been cut down. They can't really float on this bubble anymore. They now kind of have to work harder. Um, whether arts assistants are getting paid more, I don't know. But it really says something that American Vogue offered basically half of what the Guardian then offered me to be the fashion assistant, which is why I then went to the Guardian. I mean, people think of American Vogue as this big glitzy place and the Guardian as this like scruffy little Farringdon Road place. And yet the Guardian was offering better terms than Vogue. Um, so I think there is a sort of entitlement about those fashion magazines still, like you should just be grateful to work there. But I think there's also been a dark period of reckoning, particularly now with the internet and most people don't read Vogue, they just look at Instagram. It's interesting. We we interviewed the feature editor of British Vogue, and we we asked him about oh. this, and they they said they now have like a proper paid internship scheme and stuff like that. So it's it's not just you know relative blood relatives and <laughs> stuff and and that kind of thing. Um, so they cl they they claim some change, but you know. Is that Giles Hattersley? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I think I don't know how it was at, at British Vogue. I never, I, I was a contributing editor there, but I never applied for a job there. But at American Vogue, it is funny, and when I actually just read um, the memoir of Andre Leon Talley, uh, who's, who's got a very sort of tell-all book about how much he hates Anna Wintour, basically. And it's always sort of been like that, how it's always just been this sort of very privileged place where no one gets paid and everyone just lives off orders at parties. <laughs> Can we talk a bit about um, like broadsheet fashion journalism? Like how does, you know, you, you came in to Garden, you're on the fashion desk. How, we've had previously, we've had data with Cosmo, obviously that's a little bit different, but like, both at the time you were starting and now, how does like The Guardian do fashion journalism in, a, well, in that context? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed a lot. So I started in 2000, so the website barely existed and we certainly didn't think about the web then. Uh, I left the fashion desk in 2009 when I moved to New York. So it's been a while since I've been on the desk, but I, you know, obviously I follow it. Um, and now it's, you know, fashion journalists are expected to put up articles basically every day. Um, it's constant fashion news coverage. Um, there's a lot more awareness of what fashion advertising can bring to a newspaper. So, you know, when I started, 
you know, we were seeing, you know, I was working with Jess Cartner Morley and, you know, people respected certainly her, not necessarily me because I was an idiot, but they certainly respected her. Um, but there was also this idea that it was kind of like this guilty secret, the fashion at the Guardian. And eventually, certainly after 2008, there was this realization, oh, actually, <laughs> this little desk could bring in advertising money. So it was given more space. There's now obviously magazine supplements. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like everything else in the newspaper industry, particularly now, I'm sure it's feeling the pinch and, you know, it's not like it used to be in our heyday, it would be like four people going off to fashion weeks. And now it's definitely not going to be like that anymore. When we interviewed uh, Jay Rayner, not to keep name dropping famous people we've interviewed, but um, he talked about writing about food and he said, it's not just talking about lamb and fish. It's, you know, you have to still build a story about it. Otherwise, you know, there's nothing to say really. Yeah, not that's not quite how we put it. Anyway, um, is the same true in fashion? You know, when you were writing about catwalk shows and that kind of stuff, did you try and kind of find the story that isn't just there's a lot of blue dresses at the minute, or was there a fair bit of that as well? Well, I always felt like the sort of embarrassing, sort of clueless cousin, really, on the fashion desk, because Jess Cartner Morley, who was the fashion editor then, and I think is now the editor at large, really knows about fashion history and her approach, she'd go to a show and she would, you know, really place it in the context of fashion history and explain, you know, why Balenciaga was doing this with dresses and why Gucci was doing that with prints, et cetera, et cetera. And I did not grow up with this, you know, great love of, you know, fashion history. I just thought this would be a fun thing to do, right, about fashion, you know, why not? Um, and so I tried to write about fashion in a way that would appeal to people who don't care about fashion. So I would try to make it funny. I would try to sort of explain why this was relevant to us all. Um, not doing that kind of... Um, Miranda Priestley thing and um, Devil Wears Prada going that blue and Yves Saint Laurent is the blue on your jumper but you know just trying to bring in references that would appeal to people bring in movie references all that sort of stuff but I always felt like you know everyone else looked at me like a bit of a joker but I think the truth is you know well I'm sure a lot of the fashion press just thought I was some you know idiot um, I think maybe it appealed to some readers who would otherwise just be like why should I care about a Balenciaga show? What was the reaction from the the fashion world itself that you were, were you did they think you were insufficiently reverent <laughs> i'm sure some did um well i certainly got banned from a lot of shows um okay. so paul smith i think armani i can't even remember i mean there was there was like eight shows i got banned from, oh, on what grounds from writing um unpleasant reviews of their shows because I just I it didn't occur to me really that I was supposed to be reverent to them I always thought that my responsibility was to the reader and to make a fun you know something fun to read and something that was true um whereas obviously the relationship in fashion particularly fashion magazines is entirely with the design houses so it's all about being reverent to them and you know there are arguments in defense of that you know because magazines then get loads of access and then readers get to read these interviews with armani on his boat and blah 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 but i i mean <laughs> i just didn't really care about that i i didn't want i didn't care about being invited to these dinners and that was probably a flaw in me i just wanted to make something fun to read um which shows you know, I don't think that's better. In some ways, I think that's sort of, I don't know, maybe it's unprofessional from a fashion journalist. But I didn't care if I wasn't on the list for the Paul Smith show. I just thought, great, I have a spare hour now. I can like <laughs> go up and get a haircut or something. It didn't bother me. Was there a sense of how it meshed with the kind of politics of the Guardian? I know um, I've talked to Andy P. Trazic, who I've written for before, and he he says that like, you know, travel, like it can't be, you know, we, we, stuff needs to be affordable. It needs to kind of fit with that and things. Like, would you, would you get a slap on the wrist if you wrote about like something that was, too expensive was it did it have to have like you know how, how did that sort of stereotype of like you know a Birkenstock wearing Guardian Ernest <laughs> fit with kind of like high fashion and Hadley 
It was, it was, it's always, it was this, I'll put it this way, it was an ongoing discussion. Um, so how it generally worked was we could cover the shows. Like they understood the shows brought in advertising and there is a young readership who wants to know what Gucci is doing, what Prada is doing, etc. But in terms of the, of the shoots we did, so in the magazine, I mean, obviously I never did a shoot, but you know, you would commission a stylist and photographer, you couldn't have clothes over a certain price point. And that did limit the stylists who wanted to work for The Guardian and you know, all that kind of all that jazz basically um so there was a definite consciousness that guardian readers are not wanting to they're not ft readers they don't want to read about you know a twenty thousand pound choker from cartier you know that's not relevant to them they will accept you know clothes from you know high end of the high street and maybe a, a little bit of armani but that's it so th the shows are kind of the fantasy and the shoots were trying to be a bit more realistic you mentioned kind of wanting to capture a sense of fun. I read one of your columns about boyfriend jeans, which was, which was really playful and really funny. How do you kind of tread that line between playful and joyful and kind of poking fun at the fashion industry? I mean, you've said that it's seen as fair game for accusations of idiocy. So how did you kind of get that, that balance right? Well, I tried just to be honest about it. And the truth is I spent so long in the fashion business and I met plenty of people who I really respect. And I don't think it's just full of complete idiots. It's, you know, people who are working hard and I can respect that. And I also think the clothes do have relevance and they do bring pleasure to people. There's no need to totally rip the industry apart. You can call it out for its flaws. I mean, I would just try to write about it the way I talk about it, which is that I really enjoy it. Um, and yet it's also kind of ridiculous. But I think that's also true of, you know, the movie industry. I think that's also true in a lot of ways of the theater industry. Um, sure, Jay Rayner would say is very true of a lot of aspects of the food industry. So, you know, fashion gets singled out, obviously, because it's female dominated and therefore it's seen as frivolous and silly in a way perhaps sport isn't. I mean, certainly sport is fair game for a lot of mockery. Um, so I, I wasn't trying to, you know, rip it down. I was trying to point out its flaws and also enjoy, you know, celebrate what's joyful about it. So it's a rule of the podcast. We always ask about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives. And you've been ad admirably frank about this with, with American Vogue. But so in terms of like when you were at The Guardian, have you been on staff? Have you been freelance? Like how is this, how is, how is money fitted with your work? Uh, so I'm incredibly lucky uh, in that I got hired for The Guardian in 2000 um, and was put on staff. I mean, I wasn't earning you know, huge amounts, like my starting salary was 17,000 pounds a year. And that was the case for a long time. Um, but I'm still on staff 20 years on. And, you know, obviously, if I was I'm sure if I was, you know, I don't know, working at Telegraph or whatever, you could earn more. But, you know, I'm a staff, I have a regular salary, I get a monthly salary, which is a lot more than most writers. And I would just wrote the memoir around it. So I would write in the evenings, I would write on the weekends, my boyfriend would look after our children, we have three small children. Um, and I just did it around that. I, I, you know, how I would have been able to do the memoir, to go off on research trips and all that, if I didn't have a monthly salary, I really don't know. So I very much accept I'm in a privileged position. Did, the, did your publishers help fund the research trips? Because in some of the people we've interviewed in the past, you've kind of had to do it on your own dime or as part of your advance? No, I did it entirely on my own dime. I didn't get the advance till I was basically done with the research. Uh, so I, I, would, I was basically using my vacation times to go off and do the research. So I get six weeks vacation a year and I would use most of those to go off on these trips and try to do it all in a big batch each time. And yeah, I was just using my own money. It's like, woohoo. You didn't get any of your advance up front? 
But I got it, you know, I, no, no, not when I started researching. Oh my God. I mean, I didn't even Oh, but, oh because you spent two decades researching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I didn't get my advance till January, 2018, at which point I'd been going on these stupid trips for 18 years. Um, <laughs> at which point I, I definitely spent more than, on my research than I got for my advance. Like, no question. I accept that. I, you know, I never really expected to get anything anyway. I thought this was some stupid, you know, wild goose chase. So that's it. And it's because I have a regular salary that, you know, I'm not on the breadline, basically. To kind of move things um, back in the kind of chronology of your career, um, what made you want to move to the, or how did the move to the features desk come about in 2008? Uh, with great reluctance on my part. I really didn't want to go. Um, I love Jess Cartner-Morley so much. She's still one of my dearest friends. And I hated the idea of not working with her after being with her for nine years. But Ian Katz, who was um, the deputy editor of the paper and is also the editor who hired me um, straight out of university, Guardian um, was adamant that it was time for me to be a columnist and features writer. And pretty soon after that, I was packed off to New York to be the US features writer. So that was that really, he just thought it was time for me to move on. He'd only ever put me on the fashion desk because that was the only place there was a spare chair in the office. He, he found me because while I was at university, I won a writing prize. And on the back of that, he hired me. And he said, just sit on the fashion desk for a bit. We'll find you a chair later today. And nine years later, I was still on the fashion desk. What was the prize you won? Uh, so this is the most unhelpful story ever. But um, so I was at university, as you know, I was um, working for the student paper. And my mom came across an advert in the Daily Telegraph for young female journalists under 30. And because I'm like an American kid, I would send my mother everything I did at university. And she sent off two interviews I did. Um, one was with Richard Whiteley, the late um, uh, presenter of Countdown. And one was with Ian Hislop, the editor of Private Eye. And she sent them off. I didn't know anything about this. And um, a couple of weeks later, I got this call and someone at the Daily Telegraph telling me to come down to London for a prize thing. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm doing my finals. I don't know what this is about and hung up. <laughs> I was that. And my mom went off and <laughs> got up and accepted my prize for me from Lord and Lady Longford, who I think were a bit bemused by this 50 year old woman had apparently just won this writing prize for like 25 <laughs> And I was doing my finals and I had, I was one of the first people to have a mobile phone because my parents are very protective and they always wanted to be able to get hold of me. And I walked out of my finals uh, in June, 1999 and my phone rang and it was, and I answered, and I said, hello. And it was only ever my parents. And they said, hi, this is Ian Katz from the Guardian newspaper. Can you come in for an interview? And I thought, wow, this is easy. You just leave finals and you get a job interview. Wow. Everyone told me this would be hard. Like this was an idiot. And I didn't realize for ages what happened that my mother had won this prize for me. So that was the stupid story of how I got my job. A recurring theme of the podcast is, is prizes make all the difference. I need to get me some of those. A hundred percent. I mean, way more than work experience. I mean, every vacation that I was at university, I did work experience at some newspaper, the Observer, the Telegraph, the Times, whatever. None of it made any difference. Everything was, was the prize. And I'm always, whenever young people email me asking what to do, I say, enter every prize you see, you know, Vogue writing competitions. If the Daily Telegraph still does its little prize, whatever, enter everything. That's what makes the difference. We talk about some of the features you sent, which, which mm -hmm. I very much enjoyed reading, and particularly yeah. on you know, your, your kind of transatlantic, your servant background, but you've also worked in Britain and the US. Um, we discussed this again, actually, it's came up with Giles at Vogue, but where do you stand on the kind of difference or approach between the sort of British, like, 
Sunday supplement kind of sit down uh, and like the big sort of New Yorker multiple time multiple sources profile where do you what are your sort of thoughts on I that? I mean I don't now? understand how any of those American magazines get that access I mean you know we're lucky these days to get 45 minutes in the Corinthian hotel um, so how Esquire whatever gets to spend a weekend with Bill Murray is beyond me um, I can only assume there you know there's some trade-off somewhere um, I think, you know, there are some interviewers who can get a lot out of 45 minutes, someone like Decca Aikenhead or Ginny Dugree. Um, and that's enough. You know, obviously there are American journalists who are, you know, who are just, you know, unparalleled really. Someone like Ian Parker, I think, is just probably the most brilliant profiler around. Um, but I've never felt like I'm particularly, you know, I've, I've never felt you know, that I'm desperate to do that kind of American style journalism. I think a lot of times American journalism takes itself really seriously. I think there's less of a sense of fun. Um, the few times I have been able to spend a weekend with somebody, it has been incredible. And you do get this amazing insight into somebody. Um, but I've never particularly wanted to write for an American publication. Um, I find with American publications, they have a real style, uh, house style, and you have to adhere to it. And it takes someone with the brilliance of, of like Ian Parker or Ariel Levy or Lauren Collins or at the New Yorker to be able to work around that. I personally would find that oppressive. One of the things I love about The Guardian is they just let you use your own voice. And that to me is the most important thing with an interview. If you're enjoying Always Take Notes, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. Even a small monthly donation, the price of a cup of coffee, will help us pay our producer and social media editor. It will also cover our hosting fees and go towards upgrading our equipment. If you donate $10, you will receive a bundle of successful story pitches to a range of publications, including The Guardian Long Read, National Geographic, The Times and GQ. Different in style, length and tone, the document will show an aspiring writer what has worked in the real world. You can find our page at www.patreon.com slash always take notes. I was going to say, because the, the two pieces that you sent over for us to look at, the Tony Slattery and the um, Nicholas Cage interview, both of them begin with you kind of describing your admiration for, for your <laughs> subjects. <laughs> is, no, not in a bad way, but isn't, is it deliberate or is it encouraged for the journalists to kind of not insert themselves into the story but kind of show that they've <laughs> admired their subject for a while or no, their work god i mean they don't really tell you anything Gary. i mean they, i mean I, i'm not saying they're, they're you know useless but they really do let you go off and do your own way and that's embarrassing when those interviews do that um i mean i it's taken a while for me to figure out how to insert oneself into an interview and i'm never entirely sure it's the right thing i think with the tony slattery one i felt I kind of had to, I sort of had to kind of set this up, explain who this person is as someone who's been off screen for 20 years and try to convey the excitement about why this is cool, why this isn't like me interviewing some tragic has-been, this is somebody who is super talented and this is exciting. Uh, and with Nicolas Cage, well, I guess it's true for both of them. I felt I had to confront the critics head on. You know, Nicolas Cage is kind of mocked. Everyone's like, oh yeah, the Cage rage, ha ha ha. And I want to convey why I think he's amazing. I mean, I, he is my favorite actor. Um, and it's fun when you can convey your excitement to the reader. And I hope I did that in both those cases, rather than just me sort of grandstanding, saying my opinion is all, I just want to convey the excitement. Um, but I, you know, there are times when I think journalists in insert themselves into interviews too much, and I'm sure that's true of me. Um, and there are times when you really need to stand back. Um, both of those, they are quite eccentric men in very different ways. And you sort of have to put it in a bit of context it, otherwise it sounds a bit mad if you just put it on the page is tony slattery okay i mean that was what i wanted to 
check in having read that piece? It's funny you ask that because I've actually just re-interviewed him um, because Horizon has done this documentary with him on the back of that interview that I did last year. Um, I would say he is okay. Um, but this second interview I've done with him, I've really had to insert myself. And I'm, I'm still not sure about it, but I, I basically made it about the morality of interviewing someone like that. Cause I, I think that is a real issue. And I was very aware of that with that piece. Um, and I think it's going to be more of an issue with the horizon documentary. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to examine. Um, he's doing okay though. How long would an interview like that take to put together? I mean, how much time do you have to spend on, on a long interview piece? Um, uh, usually about a day and a half. Um, and that includes transcription time. So I think Tony Slattery, I think I interviewed him on the Tuesday. I filed it Thursday night is how that went. And same probably with, with Nicholas Cage. Um, I, I, I think I'm gonna have to do an interview tomorrow morning and file that to weekend magazine Thursday lunchtime. I mean, it is quite quick. Um, and I like it that way, to be honest. I can't really deal with these sort of long, sort of monthly magazine deadlines. I much prefer just to get on with it. How does your, the rhythm with writing a column compare to that? And how do you, what is your process with that? How do you find ideas? What, oh. is it your editor throwing them at you? Or oh, I wish. <laughs> lift, lift, lift the lid. The ideas, I mean, the ideas are 90% to me. Once you've got the idea, it's fine. The ideas are, are hard. It's the worst part of the column. And to be honest, the magazine column is kind of a nightmare at the moment because of the coronavirus. And this is hardly the worst part of the coronavirus. <laughs> but obviously deadlines are sort of even longer. So now I have to file it 10 days in advance. So I have to think about what people are thinking about 10 days in advance. And already I regret the column that's coming out in four, in four days. We're doing this on Tuesday because that should have really run last weekend. You know, everything feels wrong. Um, I personally prefer to do interviews. Um, I don't feel like I have I'm that opinionated a person, although I'm sure readers would disagree with me at this point. I prefer to write about people rather than just me opinionating. Um, but sometimes if you can, if you have something that's, you know, a story or a little, or it may be a thought, whatever, that connects with other people, then great, you know, connects with readers, fantastic. But I don't want to be sitting here saying, this is what you should think about everything. I'd much rather tell the story of someone's life like Tony Slattery. Well, the, the, a column that kind of combined both those sensibilities was one on um, Woody Allen's memoir. Um, mm. And I kind of wanted to ask you about uh, like controversy, because in 2013, um, according to a Wikipedia page, you received a bomb, a bomb threat for uh, a piece that you'd written. What was, what was that like? And did anything kind of change for you after that? Um, no, nothing changed. It felt really ridiculous. It was obviously not true. I had to call the bomb squad though. The Guardian made me call the bomb squad and the bomb squad came around to my little flat in West London where I was living at the time. And I had to explain to them what Twitter was because I'd been threatened on Twitter and they had no clue what it was. And the whole experience was like something out of hot fuzz, basically. It was so Were they like in a suit? They were like in full hazmat suits and it was all very impressive, but they were so, I mean, I don't want to be slagging off the metal, please, but they were so kind of, mystified by this whole thing one of them left his hat in my flat and I had this policeman's hat in my flat for ages like that, that just kind of typified just how kind of slack the whole thing was um but there is you know yes that I do get a lot of controversy I do get a lot of people telling me how much they hate me um whether it's about the Woody Allen stuff or gender stuff or I wrote a few weeks ago about that mean Karen that made a lot of people angry um I don't enjoy controversy but I won't what I really don't like is feeling like I can't say what I feel out of fear of some people's 
um, not feelings, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but some people kind of, you know, some people's social media reaction, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal with that. As long as I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to cause a scene. I'm not trying to get attention for myself. I'm just saying what I honestly believe is true. What I know other people around me believe is true. It's something I've often talked about with my friends beforehand. And I, I, you know, everybody feels like they're being bullied these days. Everybody likes to think they're the victim. I don't feel like I'm being bullied. I feel like I'm going to say something that I honestly believe. And for these, what I think are good reasons. And if that makes some people angry, there are worse things in the world. Do you think ever, not just yourself, but in the kind of column writing biz, as it were, there is an incentive to kind of poke the bear, you know? To, oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm sure there is. Um, people do want clicks, all the rest of it. Uh, I'm really not interested in that. I do think readers are smart enough to see through it. I really do believe that. And I don't, I would never condescend to readers by saying something stupid just to get attention. I mean, I think readers are you, me, you know, all of us, like we're, you know, I don't think they're this kind of sheeple mass <laughs> there. And I think people can tell when a columnist is being honest, when a columnist is being straight, when a columnist is trying to think about both sides um, and, or, and they can also tell when a columnist is too scared to say what they really think. And I'm not going to be that. And, you know, there have been many times when I've written about particularly Woody Allen and gender stuff. I've got messages from other journalists saying, thank you so much for saying that. I'm too scared to say that in public, you know, whether it's film critics or female columnists or whatever. And I do think, you know, if you're scared to write something, you probably shouldn't be a journalist. I'm sure Christopher Hitchens said that somewhere. But if you really believe something, then say it. I mean, you know, don't just say any old crap that goes through your head. But if you really believe something for decent reasons that you've researched, fine. If that makes a couple of loud, angry people on Twitter upset, you can deal with it. They're not punching you in the face. It doesn't matter. It's okay. Kind of related to that, um, what was it like with the kind of Suzanne Moore opinion piece about, um, about gender um, self-ID? I mean, it was very divided, you know, divisive among the Guardian's own staff. It was. Um, and I was sort of the center of that for a little bit because, I mean, I don't know if you saw Suzanne wrote about this meeting that happened. We have morning meetings at The Guardian every day. Um, we go through the paper and there were some people who stood up and said they found Suzanne's column upsetting. And I was the only person for the first half hour who was defending her. Um, and then another a news editor came in and chimed in with me. And was really she there? Was she in the meeting? No. Um, I mean, I don't feel like I'm betraying any Guardian confidence here. <laughs> this is all out in the open. You know, this is, we all know that this is a very divisive, emotive subject. And I'm very aware that there are sensitive people out there who feel, you know, that their identity is being attacked. I do also feel that, you know, gender is an issue. You know, gender is something, I mean, I don't necessarily believe that much in gender. I don't feel like people have innate femininity or masculinity. Other people disagree, that's fine. But, you know, when we talk about redefining what a man or a woman is, that doesn't only relate to transgender people, that also relates to men and women, and particularly in the terms of redefini redefining what a woman is, that definitely relates to women. And I feel someone, particularly like Suzanne, who has been at you know, the forefront of feminist campaigning for the past 40 years, she has something to say about that. And I think that she has a right to say something about that, and that's okay. You know, People have different opinions on this, and that's okay. We can listen to each other's sides. No one is saying anyone doesn't have the right to exist. We are discussing a conflict of rights, which it definitely is. We can acknowledge that and move and go from there. Do you feel that like a, a sort of controversy like that in 2020 has a like defined half-life? Is it like six days of Twitter going crazy <laughs> and then like the ship has sailed and someone else is, is getting it? Or does it just like simmer and... 
you know, then you get a, a bomb threat sometime later. I mean, it definitely simmers on and on. I mean, I've been writing about this stuff since I think like 2013, and there are certainly people on social media who've been going at me about it and feel that I'm a terrible person since then, and will you know say that every time I write an article. But, you know, these people are vocal and they are a minority. It's not the whole world. I don't feel the whole world hates me. I don't feel the whole world hates Suzanne. Um, and equally, I don't hate any person who's campaigning for the different perspective. Um, I think we can both listen to each other respectfully. Um, these controversies, like you say, do bubble up on Twitter. And I also think people need to remember that Twitter is not the real world or even by any means the majority of the world. So change tack slightly. Um, I'm kind of interested in your work, so I mean, I know the turnaround of pieces is, is pretty quick, but how many pieces will you have on the go at, at, the, at one time? Let's see. So um, I, filed, I filed two pieces so far this week. Um, I've got an interview tomorrow and a column on Friday, and I've got two interviews to prep for next week. So it's pretty much constant, and it's obviously kind of a nightmare at the moment with the coronavirus when I've got all three of my children at home and no one at school. Um, but it's usually I'll have on average three, three pieces, you know, one that's no, I, I'll always have three pieces a week to do and then pieces ahead to think about. So it's, it tends to work like that. And are you doing these interviews via Zoom? I'm sure listeners will be interested to hear about the art of the interview in, in the age of coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's either Zoom or telephone. I prefer Zoom so I can see them, but some people only can do telephone. Um, yeah, and it's not much fun. Like it's definitely, I feel... Again, this is not the worst thing about the coronavirus, but I do feel the art of the interview is definitely going to go down a little bit during this period. And in the kind of Guardian ecosystem, where how do the interface between like the feature writers or particularly the columnists and like the news reporters, like who is like the big beast in the jungle you know, in <laughs> in there? And you know, do they do they drink together or are they like how do, how do these things? manifest themselves um, and like and like you know it did are there like junior columnists who like will respectfully walk past you as they you know, write their first comment as free piece like lift lift the lid on the internal byzantine hierarchies no one respectfully walks past me um, <laughs> um we are all mixed together pretty tightly we definitely all are together in the canteen um you know, obviously there's people from different generations. I think that would be more of a, the, the kind of strata rather than the kind of hierarchy. It's not like, you know, okay, there's Jonathan Friedland and Marina Hyde and, you know, um, you know, the you know, Heather Stewart, you know, the political editors up there. It's more who people are friends with, I guess. And that's often people who came in together at the same time. Um, but I, in terms of like the young common street people, they don't tend to be in the Guardian. They tend to be working from home. Um, and uh, I think a lot of things have changed. One of the big things I've noticed that's changed in my 20 years there is when I started, the comment desk was kind of nothing. Like nobody really cared about it. This was just the newspaper. You know, if you wanted to be a kind of big name, you were a big interviewer like Simon Hattonstone um, or Jonathan Friedland, or you were like, you know, a big um, news reporter like Patrick Wintour. And since the internet has taken off, and this is not just The Guardian, this is all newspapers, it's suddenly all become about comment. It's all become about columnizing. You know, everybody wants to be a columnist. Young people all want to be columnists. When I go talk to journalists, schools now they all want to be columnists or comment writers they used to all want to be critics or interviewers or news reporters and that's a big change I think that's something the internet has made people see columnists and comment writers as celebrities because their faces are at the top of their pieces um, and it's an easy way to get hits on the internet you know a, a big foreign report from Kabul or something is tends not to get a lot of hits on the internet but um, you know a big comment piece about I, you know I don't know Corbin gender whatever does get a lot of hits on the internet I personally think I am a columnist, but I think that's a loss. I think your end goal should not be 
I mean, I don't think your first goal should not be column writing. That should be something that comes later. And it's not like I think it's because you need loads of training or anything, but I think just having an opinion is not a good first rung of journalism. I think doing other stuff, learning to think outside of yourself, you know, doing news reports, you know, whatever is better. Learning to report and something, et cetera. Yeah, just learning to not only think about the voice inside your own head, really, not think your opinion is the end point. You know, I, I did a whole news training course when I started at The Guardian. I had to do two months in Manchester on the Northern Desk, then a month on a local newspaper, then two months on the night news desk in London, then one month night subbing on the news desk. Um, and that was really valuable. And I'm also glad I started off as just a features writer. Nobody cared about my byline. No one was looking at my byline. No one knew about my name. You know, I didn't become a columnist for 10 years. Um, and I still have mixed feelings about it, the whole profession, really. I don't think it should just be one person's voice. And I definitely don't think that's how young journalists should start, just, singing, just saying their own voice, really. And what is your, your next move, as it were? Do you think you'll do another book? Do you think you'll continue in the, in the colonizing game? <laughs> well, let's see if, you know, I mean, let's hope The Guardian's still open at the end of this. I mean, I'm sure it is. It's not an exclusive revelation. I'm sure The Guardian will be fine. Um, unfortunately, I do have to do another book because I'm stupid enough to sign a two-book deal for this one. So, <laughs> uh, my mother said to me, well, now you can write about my family. And I thought, I think we're done on the memoir archive research now. I think I'm going to do like some book people keep next to their toilets about, you know, the meaning of my dog's facial expressions or something. Um, so for the moment, I'll be grateful if the guardian keeps me there, if I can still do interviews. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was a plan before the coronavirus that I was going to transfer out to Los Angeles, um, which would be fun. So maybe that will happen if uh, the virus ever leaves America, but considering how people are refusing to be locked down, that seems less and less likely these days. Would that be with a kind of entertainment focus or? It would be interviews. So um, all those, all the movie interviews and all that stuff are out there. Um, and you know, at first I was really averse to interviewing actors and stuff. And then I, I go to LA about four times a year for The Guardian and I realized I can organize my own interviews there. And for the past few trips, I've done people like, you know, Mel Brooks or uh, Rob Reiner and those kind of more fun people. It's not just about interviewing some you know 19 year old who's in the new Marvel movie. It doesn't have to be that. I always want to interview like the old people and there's a lot of really cool old people in LA. So I, that's what I'd like to do. Well, Hadley, we should, we should wrap this up. But thank you for being such a, a great guest on, on Always Take Notes. Um, and thank you for, for persisting with the, the audio during lockdown. Um, and wishing you all the very best with your, your projects going forward. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Hello, it's us again. Um, Rachel, what was your take on that interview with Hadley? I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought she was a very witty and entertaining guest. Um, and much like her work, I really enjoyed reading, particularly her early coverage of, of fashion shows and fashion trends. Um, I would advise listeners to go and dig that out. I thought it was, um, yeah, it's well worth read. Uh, well, how about you? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. She was really fun and, yeah, kind of witty and, and amusing, but clearly at the same time also very accomplished in, mm. in her work. very self-deprecating. Yeah, and in a, in, yeah. A, in a sort of, I suppose her identity is like a, a mixed American-British amalgam in all sorts of ways from, you know, She's quite kind of New York brassy, but yeah, a bit of bit of um, uh, British self-deprecation. But I thought she was a great guest to have on, very funny, and um, and also just kind of interestingly candid about how she had that idea to write the memoir, you know, years and years ago, and it was a project mm. that went on for a really long time before she um, she got a deal and so forth. 
Yeah, quite the contrast to the really quick turnaround on on the newspaper pieces. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. My jaw kind of hit the floor as someone who works on it <laughs> on a weekly. <laughs> yeah, I think that is fascinating with those, you know, those big kind of turnaround interviews, which are, you know, 2,000 words or whatever, and are literally turned around in a couple of hours. And, yeah. You know, or a couple of days. And there's clearly a real art to doing that. I think I might find it slightly frustrating, I think, in the end, having to work within, you know, the that level of, of time pressure and so forth. But yeah. Really for those who, who can do it, it's, um, it's not. Definitely. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.